All right, so uh, welcome everybody. Thank you, thank you for inviting me. You know, I, I really miss it. Every time I'm here, I remember how much I love it here and how much I miss you guys. So uh, really a pleasure to be back. Um, and I, I just enjoy sharing ideas that I find interesting and I hope you guys find it interesting as well. Uh, a little bit about myself. Um, I, I work with the mentally ill. I'm a psychiatrist right now, a psychiatry resident. So I work every day and I see the results of psychosis and mental illness of different forms. So this is a topic I think really that hits pretty close to home. Because the, the topic that I want to discuss tonight is from Masechet Hagiga, Davyot Dalit Amud Bet. And it's all about Arba'an Nechnesu Pardes. That's the central portion of what we're going to be teaching tonight. The four people who ventured into the Pardes, the orchard or paradise if you will. Some kind of mystical experience. So earlier this year, I was sitting around in Kings County Hospital on the fourth floor. I'm an inpatient unit. I had a great attending physician with me, very nice guy. And I decided, you know something, I, I think I want to explore a topic just while I have extra time in between patients. So I looked up online, what's the difference between, or what's almost the determining factor between having a mystical experience in a positive way, Versus having a psychotic experience where you almost lose your mind. And this paper that I read was so profound that I ended up giving it as a presentation to my attending. And it, it compared two different individuals. One individual was a psychologist. And this person uh, ended up having a very psychotic experience. Even after becoming a psychologist. And they talk about through their writings, how they were able to pull themselves out of it, and what it was like to be in that psychotic mindset. And they compared the writings of that person with the writings of a psychiatrist who had a mystical experience, just walking around the nature without the use of any psychedelic substances or anything like that, just a religious, mystical experience. And the paper came to the following conclusion. So first of all, a little bit about each side. So the psychologist with psychosis, said that when they entered this, this psychotic realm, it's everything had a meaning to it. Even street signs, even numbers all around me, all were self-referential. Everything had to have some kind of meaning towards me and towards my ego. And that's how they were driven to become psychotic and paranoid eventually. But the opposite extreme is the mystical experience of the other person. And she was saying all is meaning in a general sense. And I felt myself connected to the world at large and the universe at large. And I lost my sense of having a, a separate self. But interestingly enough, they looked at all the writings of, of these people. They said, what's the determining factor between psychosis and mysticism? The answer was ego strength. What does that mean, ego strength? Having a, a strong sense of self and a strong identity. And you say, isn't that ironic? Because you would think that a person who is more likely to have a mystical experience is a person who needs to give up themselves, to give up their ego. So the question is, how am I going to be able to give up my ego if I have such a strong sense of myself, a strong sense of my ego? So my attending brilliantly told me, he looked at me and he said, could it be that people with a stronger sense of self are going to be the ones who are more easily able to give up control and they're going to be more trusting of the experience and therefore are not going to fight it? And they're going to be more likely to have a mystical versus a psychotic experience. And I said, aha, uh -huh, you're right. It has to be. It has to be that 
there's this irony here that when we seek after the mystical, when we seek after the general and the vast and the, the massive, that doesn't mean we should leave behind the particular and the specific and loving the particular. I gave a, a shi'ur once about Moshe Rabbeinu in uh, Parashat Yitro. Why does this parasha begin with uh, a, a very particularistic thing about Moshe and his father-in-law and his wife and his kids? And then it talks about this huge mystical experience for all of B'nai Israel where everybody gets, we receive the Torah and the Ten Commandments. And I think the answer is you have to love the particular. You can't abandon the particulars of your life on this journey towards reaching out for the mystical experience. So that's just a little bit to wet your palate for what we're going to be talking about now, which is this, these stories. So the first time I learned this, I skipped right to Arba Anich Pardes. But then I realized, you know, I'm leaving out these very interesting stories that precede that story of Arba Anich Pardes, the four who entered the, the orchard. And I want to just read with you a little bit about that, and then we'll get to the, the crux of the story, and then we'll continue on from there. So, Tanur Abbanan, this is at the second line of the page. Anybody know who Rabban Yohanan Ben Zakai is? He was... Exactly. And he was like the... Exactly. What is it? his famous line? He basically was the savior of Am Yisrael at the time. He had the foresight, he was the leader, and he was a visionary of the time. So that's who we're dealing with here. He was riding on his donkey. And he was, you know, walking along. And Rabbi Al-Azhar bin Arach was riding his donkey behind him. Who is Rabbi Al-Azhar bin Arach? If you know Pirkei Avot. Very interestingly, yeah. Amazing. Exactly. Perfect. What's your name? Perfect, Suzanne. That's unbelievable that you know that. Amazing, amazing. So the five Talmidim of Rabban Yohanan ben Zakai, I think it, it lists in Perkei Avot, and it says the first four of them, they were all amazing in their own way. And Rabbi Al-Azan ben Arach was so awesome and so amazing that none of the other Rabbanim and Hachamim could even hold a candle to him. And he was almost like above and beyond everything that they could even fathom. So that's who we're dealing with. We're dealing with the top guys right now. Amarlo, Rabbi Sheneli Perek Echad B'Maaseh Merkava. So Rabbi Al-Azad Ben Arach looks at his rabbi and he says, Rabbi, please teach me one Perek, one section of Maaseh Merkava. Who knows what Maaseh Merkava is? The chariot, good. And Yehazkel Perek Aleph. It's this very mystical vision that goes on in the first chapter of Ezekiel of Yehazkel. And it's the Hachamim basically identify this with the equivalent of understanding the deepest depths of mystical experience. So teach me one pedic, one section of Maaseh Merkava. Amar lo, lo kachshaniti lachem velo b'amekava b'yahid, ela imken haya hacham mevin medato. So Rabban Yohanan ben Zakai tells his student, um, Rabbi Al-Azhar ben Arach, he said, didn't I teach you that we don't teach Maaseh Merkava even to one person. So everybody knows that Mishnah. You're not allowed to learn about arayot, about illicit sexual relations with two people, only one-on-one. You're not allowed to learn about ma'aseh bereshit, unless it's, you know, sorry, one-on-one with uh, arayot with two people. And with this, with Merkava, you're only allowed to, not even allowed to learn it one-on-one. 
You're only allowed to teach it to somebody who is hacham mevin midato. Somebody who already is understanding it from himself and then comes to you and says, can you confirm that X, Y, and Z are correct? And maybe you could give him Rashi Perakim to point them in the right direction, but you can't actually teach anybody Maaseh Kava. Now we're riding on a donkey and you're asking me to, to teach you? Don't you know what I told you? Amar Lord, Rabbi, Tarsheni lomar lefanecha davar ehad shilimatani. He says, and then fine, Rabbi, could you teach, can you allow me to teach you something or to recite before you something that you taught me? Which is interesting. In what way? Maybe it was like an indirect way that he was taught this already. Amar lo, emor. He says, no problem. Tell me what you want to learn and tell me what you want to study. Miyad rayarad rabban yohanan ben zakai me'ala hamor minit atif. Immediately, Rabban Yohanan ben Zakkai gets off of his hamor, he gets off of his donkey, and he wraps himself in a talit. And he sits on a stone under an olive tree. Um, maybe I'm very Tanakh in my reading, but when I hear Evan, I immediately am remembering what my teacher, Ronnie Bennett, always teaches me, which is Evan is like an anagram. If you switch around the letters, it's like Nebu'ah. Always in the Torah, we hear Yaakov takes off the Evan and then the Ma'im flows. Evan very often in the Torah has to do with Nebu'ah. And Zayit, all over the place. And Zayit represents light. Like Yitzhar, it's like Tzohar is, is the light and the understanding and enlightenment. So that's where Rabban Yohanan ben Zakkai is. Amar lo, he says, Rabbi, why did you get off of your donkey? This is what uh, Rabbi Al-Azhar is asking his Rabbi. He says, is it possible that I'm going to be Doresh, or that, or you're, and you're going to be Doresh, and Ma'asim Kava, and the Shekhinah, is, and God, the Divine Presence is going to be with us, and the Malachim are going to be escorting us, and I'm going to be riding on a donkey? It's not respectful. It's not respectful. It's it's aib. You know, how can we do that? And then immediately, Rabbi Al-Azhar bin Arach, the student, starts being Doresh in Ma'asim Merkava. Similar to what happened with Eliyahu and Navi, similar to what happens in the Mishkan on the eighth day, a fire comes down from heaven which is, of course, a validation, a heavenly validation of the teaching. And it surrounds all the trees in the field. And not only that, they all started singing a song. All the trees. What song did the trees start to sing? Hallelujah. We read this every day in the Hallelujah. Say again. In Perikshira also, beautiful. This is, they, they were singing a song. If you ask people who have had mystical experiences, they'll tell you, I felt that all of nature became a divine symphony before my eyes. I felt that I looked out at the world and everything came together like a beautiful song. Amazingly, this is what's happening with them. The, the, if, if the teaching is good enough, I always tell people this, they tell me, isn't everything we know of relative truth? How could you be talking about absolute truth? I say, is it possible 
that a relative truth brings you to a mystical experience in which you feel like you, quote-unquote, experience absolute truth, and then somehow that relative truth elevates itself to becoming the equivalent of absolute truth. It's something we can't really put into words, but when your experience is so profound, that's the experience. Experience of almost absolute truth, and it seems like this is where they got to. And now an angel of God starts talking from the fire, just like with Moshe Rabbeinu, right? In his inauguration as an Aviv. Amar, hen hen Yes, you got it on the nose. That's exactly Ma'asim Merkava. Amar Rabban Yohanan ben Zakai, unshako al rosho. His rabbi, Rabban Yohanan ben Zakai, goes and kisses on the forehead Rabbi El-Azhar ben Arach. Ve'amar, Baruch Adonai Elohei Yisrael Shenatan ben Abraham Avinu he says, blessed is God, the God of, of Israel, that gave Abraham Avinu a child that is capable of being Doresh and being understanding of the deepest depths of the mystical experience. What a beracha to give. Blessed is Abraham for producing a fruit like you. That's what he's saying. There's such a thing as people who are very good at being Doresh, but they're not so good at living, you know, walking the walk. People who are able to walk the walk, but, but they can't really talk the talk. You walk the walk and you talk the talk. He says, How fortunate are you, Abraham, that El Azar bin Arach came out of your loins. So clearly something very powerful happened. It's a good question. No, I think uh, I think Abraham, because he's like the avi avot of, of who we are. He's like the representative of what it means to be Yisrael in a way. You know, he was chosen by God because of who he represented by that. It's a good question. Maybe we're not all descendants of Moshe. That's another thing. You know, we're not all direct descendants of, Mo- of Moshe Rabbeinu himself, but a good point. By the way, we have to say a word or two about the whole idea of Maasem Merkava. We talk about Maasem Merkava if we all of us know exactly what it's all about. Now, Maasem Merkava is from the from Yiskel. And by the way, the rabbis say not everybody is able or capable of dealing with Maasem Merkava mm-hmm. because we have a lot of secrets in that. Yeah. Prophecy. It's very deep, and it's it's something that you, even if you try to read it now, like I've tried to read it, it, it makes no sense almost. It's like, what am I even reading here? But it's it's clearly something to be understood in the context of a mystical vision. Dare I say, even while you personally are in a mystical state, then you read that and maybe you understand it. That's the kind of thing it is. But that's exactly right. Yeah, it makes sense. But the descendants of the Exactly. Exactly. He could have said Yaakov, but uh, Abraham is Abraham. Yeah, exactly. Great. Exactly. And now, so that's the first story preceding Arba Anich Nesuba Pardes. Now, these ideas were presented, Beruchim Abayim, were presented to Rabbi Yehoshua. So now two other giants of Torah, Rabbi Yoshua and Rabbi Yosea Kohen, are going on their way. So it seems almost like there's something in the ether, something in the air, you know, about this mystical experience going on. And they were also on their way. They said, you know, we too shall be Doresh in Ma'asem Merkava. They said, you know, we're inspired by their experience. 
Rabbi Yoshua immediately starts being Doresh. It was the middle of July. It was very hot. It was the dry season and yet all the sky was filled with clouds, similar to the time of Shemuel that, 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 that happened. And they saw a rainbow in the sky. Why is that so significant? Because if you read Ma'aseh Merkava, one of the visions that, that Yehazkel talks about is this vision of the Keshet, of the rainbow. Interestingly enough, just for your knowledge, Keshet in the Torah represents Zot Ot Habirit. This is the sign of the covenant. The Gematria, and I'm not going to go too far with this, of Keshet is 800. And 8 is all about Birit, like Birit Milah is on the 8th day, Keshet is 800. The word Keshet appears exactly 8 times in the Hamishah Humshet Torah. Very interesting, not for now, but that's what they saw. Not only that, did they see this? They saw the angels on, in heaven coming and gathering around to listen to what the Yoshua was saying. Isn't that high praise? The same way everybody goes to Sha'aret Zion to go and, and see the proceedings of uh, Hatan and a Kala, a bride and a groom. So now Rabbi Yosua Kohen is very excited that he also had this experience with Rabbi Yoshua. And he goes and he tells Rabbi Yosua ben Zakai from the first story about his experience. Now what does Rabbi Yosua ben Zakai say to him? He says, blessed are you and blessed is the people who, the, your, your parents who gave birth to you. How fortunate are my eyes that they were able to witness you. He says, not only that, Rabban Yohanan ben Zakai is telling them, I had a dream. And in my dream, We were standing around Har Sinai. You guys and me. And we heard a bat call from heaven. Saying, come up, come up, here, to the, the top of Har Sinai. There are these, uh, uh, let's see, pleasant couches and large halls are set up for you. You're invited up here into Har Sinai. And interestingly enough, what's the Mishkan? The Mishkan is basically like this. It's like a little version of Har Sinai. The Luchot themselves were a piece of Har Sinai, physically, at the center of the Mishkan. And there's fire that comes down every once in a while, same way in Har Sinai. And there's three layers, just like it was in Har Sinai. So when we're invited into the Mishkan to meditate with God, it's the equivalent of this dream almost, of coming up to the mountain and being with God. You and your students, and the students of your students are all invited to the innermost circle. Because we said there's three layers there, the innermost layer. Wow. So clearly, something's going on here that people are having mystical experiences. That's the bottom line. Now we could get to our story. I'm skipping a little bit over there. Yes. Okay. So there was a rainbow? Because isn't a rainbow like a bad thing? 
bad sign. They say that no. like, if you see this rainbow, it's like God wants to destroy the world, but he made, like, he made the common angel destroy it. But like, is, we're deserving to have the world destroyed. There was a rainbow with Noah. So that, that's one opinion in the Gemara, but that's just a kind of like a uh, an asa itza of the hachamim. It's like one idea of the hachamim. It's not like a halakha. It's not like a, oh, this means that. It's not. It's just like an opinion, and it's it's like a, a, a musad idea to make you better your ways every time you see a rainbow. I don't think it's inherently bad. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, we all we all grew up with that. It's true, but I, I don't think it's absolutely bad. Yeah. Surely. Moshe Rabbeinu was not about Gamal. Anything was Omeinu, who was the most modest person. So with this type of ego, would he have a mystical experience mm. or, a, or a... Or a psychotic one. Psychotic I, what do you think? <laughs> I think Moshe is like the quintessential person because Hachamim compare him to like a, a lens with no nicks in it. And he's just shining that light through him because he, there's no ego there to obstruct the light. And the same thing for all of us. We can constantly be in touch with that mystical state. The more we let go of our egotistical like, kind of like insistences of the way that moment to moment should be. But I have so much to talk about with that topic. We could, we could talk about that also soon. Great points. So now let's get to the main course of this class. Tanura Banan. Four individuals entered into paradise. And these are them. Ben Azai, Ben Zoma, Aher, Verbi Akiba. So remember these four names Ben Azai, Ben Zoma, two people who I think uh, were, were not given the title rabbi. Aher, who already before the story is called Other. Instead of by his real name, which is Elisha ben Avuya, great uh, historical fiction book um, called As a Driven Leaf, highly recommend it if anybody has the time to read As a Driven Leaf. It's a, it strings together all the stories about Elisha ben Avuya with, you know, obviously a fiction in between, but it's incredibly profound. By the way, about Elisha ben Avuya, yeah. two things. Why he became the Ahir? He, he, left the, he left the religion totally. Why? In the Torah, only two places. Aywa. Exactly. One of them, Kibbut Abba'im. And the other one, Shidua Hakim. He witnessed a story in his life that the father told his son, go up to the tree and get rid of that... Uh, Shiloh Hakim, take care of that. Mm-hmm. And this boy fell down from the tree and, and died. Yep. So if, he said, if I see two cases wow. of, of long life with the child and his father, and the child lost his life, where is the truth? Dude, did that happen yeah. after he sent the bird away? Or yeah, yeah he, he did the two. He, okay. he, did, he, listened, he listened to his father. By the way, after that, he was great, great rabbi, this Elisha ben Abuya. Rabbi Meir was his best friend. That's here. Oh, I that's going to that's gonna be soon, but that's great. No, 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 please say it. Yeah. It's Talmid, Talmid of Rabbi Shabbat Yeah, yeah. So Rabbi Meir continued to be a friend of Elisha ben Abuya. So they condemned him 
say, how come you go with this kofer? Yep. Uh, because left their religion and you continue to be afraid of him. And he, no, he answered beautifully. It's like a pomegranate. Mm -hmm. pomegranate. I throw the, the, I take the, the right thing from it. I know what to exactly. take. What not to take. He is not going to influence about exactly. my behavior and my belief. Haram Bam says, <laughs> It's amazing. It's It's such a treat to have you. And it's, it's so important. Really, the... The, all the characters that are involved, and that's why I recommend this historical fiction book, they're all so colorful and they all have such a, an interesting storyline to them. It'd be Meir and Bruria and it'd be Akiba and it'd be Ishmael. All these characters are involved at this time, and we're going to see how it plays out in these stories. But fantastic, thank you. So, these four people, Ahir, but it'd be Akiba is the last one. Amar Lahem, it'd be Akiba. It'd be Akiba says to them, so now to be Akiba is acting almost like the guru. He's like the main guy that's going to guide everybody through this mystical experience. He says, when you get to the pure marble stones, do not say water, water. Because it says in the Pasuk, the person who speaks falsehoods will not be established before my eyes. So, amazingly already, I what do I think of as a reader of Torah and Tanakh? I hear about this Avne Shaish. I remember that in Parashat Mishpatim, I believe it is, at the end of it, Moshe and the elders are standing on top of Har Sinai, and it says, Vayiru et Elohei Yisrael. They saw the God of Israel. They had a mystical experience. And under the feet of God, was a sapphire brickwork. And like, which was like the essence of the heavens in their purity. It sounds a lot like this, right? Abne Shaish Tahor, same words almost. And Shaish and like Levnat Hasapir. So he's basically saying, we're going to see something like that, like they saw on the top of Har Sinai. Don't say Mayim Mayim. Don't say water, water. What are the two problems that I could think of if you say Mayim Mayim? Number one, it's not Mayim. Right? It's not actually water. We know it's Abne Shaish Tahor. It's, not, it's ineffable. One of the qualities, according to William James, of the mystical experience is its ineffability. The world as we know it and the mystical experience for sure can never be put into words. To think that your words actually express something about reality's essence is totally to be off point. So you have to know that you can never put it into words. The other thing he says about it is that it has a noetic quality. Noetic meaning it's authoritative. You could tell somebody who just did psilocybin, don't you know that you had a chemical flowing through your brain and through your veins and that's why you had this mystical experience? He'll say, I know, but I know that it was truth. Capital T, truth, and you can't convince me out of it. I knew that it was true. That's called noetic. Fine. So he says, don't call it my mind. What's the other issue? It reminds me a little bit of the Gemara when it says, 
A person says, Modim, Modim. What is that like? It's like praying to two different entities. It's like praying to two different gods. So if you say, Mayim, Mayim, number one, you're putting words to it, which you shouldn't be doing. Number two, you're trying to almost split reality into dualism. That's going to be a very important word for us because we always say, God is one. God is one beyond our comprehension of oneness. It's so one. We can't even say He's one, not like two, but one. We can't even say that. We, it's so one that we can't even express it. So to try to say, my mind is the ultimate kind of subterfuge with God. When you think of my mind, it reminds me of the two times Moshe asked for water. Mm. Once he spoke to the rock. Wow. Once he hit the rock. The first time he was alive, he struck Amazing. the rock. The second time he struck it, although he was supposed to speak to it. Yeah. I love it. And what do the Hakamim say? And Maim Ella Torah. So you bring up a great point because Maim in the Torah almost always is a symbol of the teaching of the Torah itself. Because and the and beautifully similar to what they talk about in the East with the Tao, that the Tao is like water. We say the Hakamim say the Torah is like water because it always sinks to the lowest point, and the Torah only comes to those who are the most humble, like Moshe Rabbeinu. That's why he was zochet to be like that clear lens. Perfect. So don't say my mind. Fine. Ben Azai, the first character of our four people, hesitz vamet. He looked, he glimpsed, and he died. I love hakatuv omer. Upon him, the scripture says, Yakar hasidav. How precious. In the eyes of the Lord is the death of his pious ones. So the Hachamim have a very positive spin of the death here of Ben Azai. It's almost like his body couldn't handle, and not necessarily in a bad way. It was his time to go in some mystical sense. And his soul touched God to the degree that his body just fell away. And his body burned away. Ben Zoma had seats got. Ben Zoma looked... And became psychotic. He lost his mind. Now this is where it becomes really tragic. And what does the Pasuk say about Ben Zoma? Devash Masata Amazing. You got it exactly. That what happens if you if you find Devash, if you find honey, eat until you're satiated and nothing more. Because lest you become overly satiated and spit it out and vomit it up you can have too much of a good thing is what the Gemara is saying so Ben Zoma was getting too involved in a good thing that he lost his mind we hear all the time about this stuff especially now because psychedelics is at the forefront of this research in, in psychiatry there's a lot of risks if you have a first degree relative with bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, they tell you absolutely not. Even a second degree relative, they say no. People doing these, these drugs are at risk for developing psychosis for the rest of their lives. It could bring out an underlying psychosis. It could be that trigger. So this is what might happen if you're not in that state of mind that's correct in that balanced ego strength state of mind that we discussed earlier. So that's Benzoma. Aiwa, exactly, and that's exactly right. Yeah, is the only one 
Exactly. And we're going to see the Pesukim about him are so beautiful. And, and it's going to say exactly what you're talking about. And what's also interesting, so I didn't know this until I was reading a book about Kabbalah, but it says as follows. So because we just spoke about Ben Zoma and Ben Azai. As the commentators point out, both Ben Azai and Ben Zoma would have been spared had they heeded their own teachings. What were their own teachings from elsewhere in the Gemara? A rabbinic text cites Ben Azai's teachings. So this is Ben Azai who died. That God cannot be seen in this world in this life. He has a whole teaching about that in the Gemara. He knows that full well. And what is it saying? His own teaching. He couldn't adhere to it because it's so overpowering, the mystical experience. So overwhelming, he couldn't even handle it. And he died. Despite knowing, Bahai, men cannot see me and live. Ben Zoma is cited as teaching that no one should gaze at an orchard belonging to someone else. Nobody should look at a pardes that belongs to somebody else. It belongs to God. It belongs to Hashem. It's not your pardes. Don't, don't look at it. Yet, overcome by their experience, each neglected his own teachings and each paid a heavy, heavy price. So that's unbelievable to me. It adds an extra layer of drama here because it's saying this is where we're at. It's such an overwhelming thing. And Yirmiyahu describes talking to Hashem and Hashem talking to him as like an ish that's bo'eret bekirbi or v'atzmotai, right? It's in his bones. That, this, this fire. Exactly. And, and he says, Pititani Adonai Ba'ipat, Hashem, you seduced me. It's, it's incredible that Hashem, you have overcome me because Yirmiyahu knew that he's going to suffer the consequences for his Nebuchadnezzar and yet he couldn't resist. That's what's going on here. That's what happens when you get very far into this mystical experience. Fine. So that's the first two characters. We're left with two more. Ahir, what did he do? When he got to the to the orchard, kitzets banetiot, bintiot, right? Ahir chopped down the shoots of the saplings, the baby trees. He cut them down. In other words, he became a heretic. It's another word of saying he became a kofir. Uh, today, today, this I, I'm not sure, but I definitely Yeah. Shema, shema. Uh, uh, follow-up uh, oh the cutting down the shoots them, yes. really I didn't know that that's crazy that's amazing that's incredible okay I'm, I want I want to look into that Wow yeah it could be okay amazing could be and finally who's the last one the Akiva left in peace and we're gonna see why this this is that story. Oh, this is the this story? is that story. So whoever taught it to you said Kabbalah. What they meant is Pardes, which whatever that means, they interpreted it as Kabbalah. Oh, okay, so it's the same story. Yeah, because Pardes. Oh, I should explain this. They explained Pardes also as being Rashet Tevot. As being an acronym for Peshat Remez Derash Sod, going very deep into the text, which is one way of getting into this mystical experience. So they were, they were reading it together, like reading Kabbalah together, and then like. We don't really know. Because like the way you make it sound, it sounds like 
like we're like in an alternate universe and they're experiencing these things. Yeah, we don't we don't really know how they got there. It stands to reason that they were Doresh, something, but we don't really know. Okay. All we know is they entered paradise. However they did it. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Ah, interesting. Forest, you child, all this food, Yanitora, you know, everything is smooth, you gotta go inside, taste, 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 but the store, you can't go there, it's there, only the Aramak can bring you there, but... Yeah, fair, that's it. It's I'm not sure exactly where it is, but you can find the next Tanur Rabbanan, a little bit down. Question. Sure. Uh, you said that, I think it was Benzema, said that he was Nika, and you translated that as... Became psychotic, yeah. So, I'm just curious how they got that, because Nika, general literal Hebrew, was yeah. he got hurt, or yeah. he got something, how did they, that become... How did that become the translation, yeah. yeah. I don't know exactly. It's you're right. It, it all it says really was it was harmed, but the the explanation that it's given in the commentaries is lost his mind. And there might be more stories about it, but we're gonna actually see right now more stories about Ben Zoma. But I don't really know if, uh, as far as I know, that's the way everybody interprets it. But it's a good question. Tanur Abanan, ben Hananya. There's a story about Rabbi Yoshua ben Hananya. Shaya Omed al Gav Maala behar habayit. He was standing on Harabait, on Haramoriya, on some kind of terrace. And Ben Zoma from our story, the one who went psychotic, this is before our story. He, w- he was sitting there and he didn't stand up before Rabbi Yoshua ben Hananya. He says, what's going on, Ben Zoma? He says, uh, from where do you come and where are you going? It's kind of like Cotton Eye Joe. You know? <laughs> so he says, what's going on? He, he's a little bit concerned for him. He was doing kind of what maybe what Abi Akiva was saying, don't get too far into. The Mayim and the Mayim. He says, I was gazing between the upper waters and the lower waters. This is going to symbolize for us all about dualism, all about seeing the world in terms of yin and yang, in terms of opposite extremes, in terms of two, and making this mistake instead of seeing all the oneness. So uh, Christianity is very much based on Manichaeanism, which is like this idea of you know heaven and hell, the devil and God, and there's two fundamental forces because that's their only explanation for evil. But Yeshayahu goes so far as to say, What does the Pasuk really say? The Pasuk says, But we change it in the Tefillah because it's so crazy to say Hashem creates evil. We say, But really Yeshayahu says Hashem Because in reality, God is somehow ineffably, but we put words to it anyway. Somehow God is everything. Why, he, do, we change? why do we change it? From, uh, we change it to etakol. My opinion is that it's it's very tough to, to read that every day. 
Yeah. Say it again. Mm. Mm. So what's the yeah? Uh, yeah. No, because it's it's difficult. It's difficult to think about the Kadosh Baruch Hu that he creates intentionally bad things. Yeah, that's uh, the other part. Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah. 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 So the thing with evil is that it always depends on a subjective point of view. So, perfect. So so exactly. And one thing I didn't mention to you guys yet is kind of what I really should be should have been talking about is tovara. right? What does it mean to eat from tovara? It means that you now change your perspective on the world from being just what is emet and sheket, as Harambam says, to now being tovara. They're not being subjective and cutting the, the world with the sword of the mind, as the Easterners would say, using your mind like a knife to cut out little pieces of reality and judge them. But in reality, you can't judge pieces. Yeah, you can only judge the whole, which you can never see. But when we ate from Etzadat, that's what we did. And Hashem says, now that you ate from Etzadat, you were previously encouraged to eat from Etzahayim. To eat from the Torah, to engage in this experience, in mystical experience with me for all time. But now that you eat from Etzadat, I'm afraid that now you'll eat from Etzahayim, which is now a problem because you're not going to understand it. And now you're out of the garden. And if you look in the Mishkan, we have invitations back into the garden because we have Kirubim, just like in the Kirubim, we're guarding the path back to the Etzahayim and the Gan Eden. In the Mishkan, you have Kerubim, but now they're inviting us into the, the Holy of Holies, and there's a lot of parallels that we could talk about, but maybe not now, between the Mishkan and, and Bereshit, amazingly, and, and how these parallels are trying to show you. Really, this is a way of inviting us back to where we fell from, almost. But bottom line, we are incapable of experiencing the mystical experience with a dualistic mindset. So this is the fundamental error of everybody who did not succeed, meaning everybody except for the Biyakiva, it seems. Or maybe not uh, Ben Azai. Ben Zoma is saying, I'm thinking about, you know, I'm looking between the upper waters and the lower waters. There's only like a tefach in between these upper waters and lower waters. Three etzba'ot, three fingers. Because it says in the Pasuk, the, the Ruach of God, the Spirit of God, was hovering above the face of the deep, of the waters. Like a dove that is hovering above its children and not ch- touching it. And why is that amazing? Because we know from the, the only two times in the Torah that the word Merahef appears is in Bereshit. And then at the very end, Al-Ghazalab Yerachef, that Hashem in Hazinu is compared to uh, like a, a turtle dove, you know, above its children. Not a Yonah, but a different kind of uh, a bird. But amazingly, it's like Hashem is investing his care into creation. That's what he's thinking about. He's thinking about Hashem hovering above the water, and that's how he's being Doresh. The separation, what's the difference between yin and yang, good and evil, positive and negative? And he's saying, oh, it's only three etzba'ot. Amar lahen rabbi Yoshuad l'talmidav adayin ben Zoma mebachutz. He says, if ben Zoma is thinking in this way, he's still outside. 
he's still not inside the palace of God. The Gemara says now, the, the verse says, the Spirit of God is hovering above, uh, upon the waters. And that goes through a whole thing. When was it stated? It was stated on the first day. Right? Hashem didn't split the waters yet when it said that pasuk. When it said the pasuk of God's you know, hovering above the water, the water was still one. It wasn't yet separated. So for you, Ben Zoma, to now make a derasha about the water as though there's two, but you're using a pasuk when it was still one, is showing his fundamental error of seeing dualism where there's really monism. With seeing two where there's really one. Now they all they each have their own explanation of really how much was the separation between the upper and lower waters. They give their own uh, thing, and one says like two robes spread over one another. One of them is like the gap between boards of a bridge, like two cups placed upon one another, much closer than Ben Zoma was thinking. Ben Zoma thought they were further apart because of his kind of you know misinformed opinion. Fine. Now let's get to Ahir. So that's Ben Zoma. We have a little bit of a glimpse into what was driving him insane. Now Ahir, why did he go off the derech? Ahir kitzetz bintiot. Alava katu So Ahir, we know, cut down the shootlings, the saplings. The pasuk says about him, Don't allow your tongue or your mouth to incriminate your flesh. Mahi, and now it says, what was it that led him to heresy? Hazam Metatron, he saw the angel Metatron, he saw the angel who was granted permission to sit and write the merits of Israel. He made the same mistake. He said, there is a tradition that in the world above, there is no sitting, no competition, no turning one's back before him. All face the divine presence. It's all one. And no lethargy. Seeing that someone other than God was seated above, he said, perhaps, and again, what I was interjecting here, God forbid, there are two authorities, he's saying. Maybe there's two. Maybe there's a devil and a God. And there's another source of power and control of the world in addition to God. Such thoughts led Ahir to heresy. It was just this experience, and we, in, in more layman's terms, it was the experience of seeing something evil in his mystical experience. Somehow, some way, there's this feeling of, I, I, I see evil in the world. I see stuff going on that's not good when you cut it into its own section. And I thought God is everything. How could this be? It's this question of evil that's really at the heart of this. So you talk to people who experience mystical experiences and they're horrified and terrified to realize in some ineffable way that God includes the good and the evil. And it's almost like I can't even say that. And that's not accurate what I just said, but it's the best that words can do. Yeah. The, the reason you speak about the Shabbat and how we can do that. Yeah. Mom, and 
The Gemara adds to what you're saying. Amazing. So what to add to what you're saying, the Gemara explains later on what was his failing of Ahir? Greek tunes never ceased from his mouth. He was always singing Goyesha music, as they say. He would constantly hum Greek songs even when he was among the sages. Right? So that's trying to show you, look, he was very involved in Greek ways of thinking and their culture. Similarly, they said about Ahir when he would stand after learning in the study hall, many heretical books which he had been reading would fall from his lap. So all these Greek philosophy books would fall from his lap. What are they trying to teach us with that? Because Greek philosophy and Western thought today comes from this very problematic perspective of splitting the world into two as part of its initial premise. Right? What do I mean by that? I mean that even to separate the world into observer and observed, subject and object, is immediately getting it wrong. So for me now to say I'm a scientist, I'm gonna the, the real question that the Easterners got correct and that the Torah is getting pretty correct is who are you? What are you? What is your essence? That's what the mystical experience makes you ask. Who am I? And unless you understand that, you can't understand anything else. So if you think that you're a separate self from the rest of the world, you already got it wrong. You're already thinking in terms of dualism. And that's the Greek way of thought. That's the Western way of thought. And the Easterners are trying to protect against that. They're trying to say, no, no, you're already starting from a wrong premise. Go back a step, go back a step, go back a step. Try to discover who you really are. Fine. So now, this is Elisha ben Avuya seeing this vision. Now, what was the punishment to Metatron for doing this? The Gemara says, they removed Metatron from his place in heaven. And smote him with 60 rods of fire so that others would not make the same mistake as Ahir. They said to the angel, What is the reason that when you saw Elisha ben Avuya, you didn't stand before him? Who does that sound like? It sounds a lot like Ben Zoma. Right? I'm realizing this now, it's the first time I realized this. Who else didn't stand just now? Ben Zoma also didn't stand. So now Metatron also didn't stand when he saw Elisha ben Avuya. And what, what did that result in? That resulted in, in making him think the wrong thing. Despite his conduct, since Metatron was personally involved, he was granted permission to erase the merits of Ahir and to cause him to stumble in any manner. Right? So even though Metatron had his own punishment, because of what Ahir did, he was able to erase the merits of Ahir. A divine voice went forth saying, Return rebellious children apart from Ahir. Everybody could return except for Ahir. And I heard a beautiful derasha in Israel in, uh, in Efrat one year from Rabbi Kadosh. He said, but not If you go back to being Elisha bin Avuya, you're invited back. But if you continue to be Ahir, you're not welcome back. So it's a, will you be able to let go of your ego? Can you let go of your problems towards God? 
Can you let go of your gripes? Can you forgive God? Then He'll forgive you. If you stop identifying as as Ahir, you're invited back because then you're back to being Elisha bin Avuya, who you really are. But if you continue to insist on all these philosophical problems and all your questions and you can't let go of them, you're clinging, as they would say in the East, you have no place with God. And that's not a punishment per se, it's a natural consequence almost, in my mind. Elisha heard this, he said, and now this is the, the issue with mystical experiences that go wrong. What ends up taking over? Our base desires. So what happens to him? He says, since I was banished from that world, let me go out and enjoy this one. Since I can't understand the spiritual realm, let me go out and indulge in the pleasures of this world. Ahir went astray. He went and found a prostitute, solicited her for intercourse. She said to him, Are you Elisha bin Avuya? Shall a person of your stature perform such an act? Hiring a zona? He uprooted a radish on Shabbat, which is of course one of the melachot, and he gave it to her to demonstrate that he's no longer observing the Torah. And she says, Wow, the, the, the prostitute now names him Ahir. She says, Aherhu, he's someone else. He's not the same guy that he was. After he went into this bad culture, as it's as they say, he he asks Rabbi Meir now. So it's almost like a heretic asking like a religious yeshiva boy, his his former talmid, still his talmid, Rabbi Meir. Tell his talmid. He says, what is the meaning of that which is written in Kohelet? God has made even the one as well as the other. Hashem made both. Yin and Yang. Rabbi Meir explains, not in a moralistic way, how does Rabbi Meir explain this? In order to help Ahir, because when you get into it in a moralistic sense of yin and yang, of evil, 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 how do I handle evil? That's when you really drive yourself insane. But if you explain it in terms of physics, it doesn't bother me to say God created protons and God created electrons. That's fine. Everybody could agree with that. There's no problem with that. That's one form of yin and yang. And the way he explains it is, oh, everything Hashem created... He created a similar corresponding to it. He created mountains. He created hills. He created seas. He created rivers. He created the man. created the wife. Exactly. And the beautiful masculine and feminine. Everyone can agree with that. For some reason, when we get into this moral question of evil, which in a sense we're projecting from our own ego, and not that we shouldn't do that because the Nevi'im all do that, and we're not supposed to give up our gripes with evil totally, it's a balance that I still haven't struck with God. You know, we, we have to kind of straddle this line between accepting the world that is and changing the world that is, and that's for everybody to figure out on their own. But the Bimeir is trying to say, no, let's not talk about it in terms of morality. This yin-yang thing, yeah, it's uh, natural things. Amar, now what's Elisha bin Aviyah's very witty response? Sorry. Uh, he says, 
He says, Rabbi Akiva, your rabbi, the one who was the only one in Yatsa B'Shalom, Lo'amarkach. He said, oh, the Biakiva didn't explain that pasuk the way you explained it. He's saying, teammate call against you. He took it in a very moral sense. Hashem created evil people just like He created good people. Same way Hashem created Gan Eden, He created hell. Every person, homo deus, right? Every, every person is like a, a dual person. One version of yourself is in heaven, in the multiverse of universes of who you are, and one version of yourself is in hell. Right, he says, each and every person has two portions. If he merits it, he becomes righteous by becoming righteous. He takes his portion and the portion of the wicked colleague in the Garden of Eden. If he's found culpable by becoming wicked, he takes his portion and the portion of his colleague in Gehennam. Right? So you're getting almost like eating the just desserts of the way that you lead your life. This is the way to be. Elisha uh, ben Ahed is explaining it because he's so torn up by this idea of dualism in the sense of the moral question like we, we have with the latter story. Amar Rav Meshar Sheya. So he goes into another pasuk about Rishayim and Sadiqim. So now we'll go, we'll skip to the next part. He's asking him a whole question about gold and glass, and neither of them could be, be exchanged for fine gold. What is it saying here? Basically, bottom line. He said to him, this is referring to words of Torah, which are difficult to acquire, like gilded vessels, but are easy to lose as glass vessels. Ahir said to him, no, Rabbi Akiva didn't explain it that way. He says, instead, just like golden vessels and glass vessels have a remedy, even when they're broken, as they can be melted down, so too Torah, a Torah scholar, although he has transgressed, has a remedy. Right? So, Elisha ibn Abiyah almost is like, maybe there is a way for me to do teshuvah. Maybe I could be recreated like a vessel. The Bimeir said to him, If so, you too return from your ways. He says, So do Teshuvah. He said to him, I have already heard the following declaration behind the divine curtain. He said, Now he's doubting himself. You talk to somebody who's really far into an addiction or somebody whose life is in smithereens and you try to like, coax them to doing good things and they basically look at you and they say, You know something? What's the point? Why even try? My life is already garbage. I might as well continue to do evil. I might as well continue into my addiction. Because there's nothing to live for anyway. I might as well indulge. That's this catastrophic mindset of Ahir. Despite knowing the Pasuk. That's saying you could recreate yourself like a vessel. He's not having any of that. And, and he said, I already heard. He's still clinging. To his identity as a hair and unable to even hear anything about Teshuvah. So now, finally, we get to the story you mentioned earlier, Doctor. Tanu Rabbanan Ma'aseh Be'Aher Shayar Ochev Al Asus Be'Shabbat. Aher was riding on a on a on a horse on Shabbat. Ve'Yad Bi Meir Mehalech Acharav. Where he stops him at the border and the boundary, 
Exactly. Ad Shabbat. Exactly. Perfect. And you know, I'm realizing now, I always have like new insights when I teach things. What does this sound exactly like? Well, we started off with the opposite extreme was Rabbi El Azar bin Arach and Rabbi Hanan bin Zakai were, were riding on their donkeys. And they had a mystical experience and they were at this high level. That's one extreme of the mystical experience. This is the other extreme that results in sinfulness and being led astray. So Ahir is riding on his horse on Shabbat. He's a foil of Rabban Yohanan ben Zakai and the Bil Azar ben Arach. But still Rabbi Meir wanted to learn from him. Rabbi Meir is like the guy that's going into the deepest depths of someone's depression or being the friend or the doctor that's sitting with somebody in the deepest depths of their psychosis and saying, I'm not going to give up on you. I still want to learn from you and with you and I still care about you. That's who Rabbi Meir was. In the East, I call him a bodhisattva. Right? So he says, Go back. Exactly. He says, that's it. I counted. This is the end of Tehom Shabbat. So he still knows and he's still aware of Allah. Same way he said before, do Teshuvah. Now he's saying, stop now. Don't go beyond Tehom Shabbat. I already heard He keeps coming back to this obsession That's what it's like when you're sitting with a psych patient Depression consists of Over-personalization Over-generalization and catastrophization Beck's triad Right? Everything is evil about me I'm no good My situation is bleak and my future is dim and they have these obsessions, negative thoughts about themselves. That's what we're hearing here from Ahir. He gave up on himself. Rabbi Meir is trying to break through that, that glass. And finally, the Gemara recites a related story that the Hachamim teach. There was an incident involving Ahir. He was, uh, oh, he said this already, fine. And then there's another incident. I don't know if we have so much time left. I'll make it quick. I'll just tell you about Alpeh. It says that when Ahir died, he, they, they prayed for him. That he should, because they, they knew that he wasn't able to go into either heaven or hell. He, he can't go to heaven because of, of course, all the evil he did. He can't go to hell because he had all that Torah that he learned. They, they were leaving him almost in purgatory. The Bimeir felt so bad, he said, that's terrible. He has to have a fate. You can't leave him in limbo. There's nothing worse than being in limbo in, in, in purgatory. Exactly. He said, he, he said if, if a fire rises up from his grave, it means he was accepted into Gehinnam, and then eventually he'll get to, to Gan Eden, and that's exactly what happened, and then eventually afterwards, the fire stopped, and it represented that he ended up in Gehinnam oh, sorry, in, in Gan Eden and it goes to show you, even Ahir, who lost his mind even if he gave up on himself, in this lifetime and it seemed like the end of the road for him it's not the end of the road there's always the next thing. Everything is temporary. It just goes on and on and on. There's no such thing as when the fat lady sings. Reality continues and continues and continues. Even for somebody who's dead. Even, you know, if you believe in reincarnation, that's one thing. If not, not, no problem. 
even for the soul, there's some way of getting back into God's good graces. And don't give up. And I think that's the lesson here. He probably gave up his identity as a khair and was again Elisha ben Avuyah for maybe a second and then joined with Hashem in Gan Eden because he's just one of a million million people that's ever been, a born, been born who's struggled with these questions. He's a human being. I think that's what the story is trying to tell us. And later on it says one of his descendants, one of his daughters was asking uh, the, the, the biggest rabbi of the time in the Gemara, I forgot exactly who, she was asking him for, for food or something, and the rabbi says, oh, he still has descendants that are coming before me? And immediately a fire came down and licked the bench next to him to show him, how dare you speak about somebody who had such great Torah? Despite the way he ended, despite the, the fact that he ended up as basically a rasha. You can't discount all the good and all the, the siddiq that he had involved in his life, Elisha bin Amuyah. And you have to have respect for somebody like that. And that's what the Gemara is saying, and that's what it's trying to teach us, is that don't judge a person, even who ended up that way. How did the Hakamim explain that? The Bimeir wanted to say, and it's a bimeir. He wanted to say, Get rid of all the evil people. Bruria says, Don't read hataim with a dagesh. Read hataim. Read sins. Mm-hmm. Destroy them all. Exactly. Exactly. Amazing. And it took the womanly touch to, uh, to, to bring him back to that compassion and to understand that Rabbi Meir of all people who himself was so compassionate, even he needed to be reminded of that in the context of other Rishayim. But when it was his rabbi, he knew full well how to have compassion. And, uh, you know, just a couple of words to end on a high note about Rabbi Akiva. Now, from the positive perspective, why did Rabbi Akiva not end up the way that the previous three hachamim ended up. Rabbi Akiva ala b'shalom ve'yarad b'shalom. So we said yatsab b'shalom, now we're going in a little more. He went up in peace and he went down in peace. He was fully enlightened going in and fully enlightened coming out. Ve'ala v'katub omer, and upon Rabbi Akiva the pasuk says, Moshcheni acharecha narutza. Beautiful pasuk from Shira Shirim, right? This love story between God and His world. It's like Rabbi Akiva saw the love behind all the difficulty and all the evil. He was able to still glimpse the love. Even in the worst of times. Even when they're killing him. Right? And the, the, he said, Shema Yisrael. As they were combing his skin. It takes a person of unbelievable he's greatness. Always, he's always optimistic. Even at the end of Masechet Makot. Exactly. He's looking at the, the destructive temple with the fox. He sees the fox. He's positive. Amazing. It's an amazing thing. This, this is the perspective. Say it again. Aywa. Exactly. Everything Hashem does is for the good. And, and that kind of uh, perspective. When Rabbi Akiva... Right when he went up, the ministering angels sought to push him out of the orchard, 
They tried to get him out of Pardes. Amar lahem HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Hashem says, Hanihu lezaken zeh shira'oi lehishtamesh b'chbodi. Leave this elder, for he is fit to serve my glory. Isn't that unbelievable? Similar to Moshe Rabbeinu, we have a lot of Midrashim, that the angels are trying to like say, Moshe, what? He's a human of flesh and blood, how could he enter? And Hashem is saying, Bechol betine emanhu. Moshe is worthy. And we have a lot of Midrashim of Moshe gazing at the future and seeing Rabbi Akiva suffering and saying, Hashem, why? Hashem, how could you allow Rabbi Akiva to suffer? And Hashem says, Shtok. Quiet, this is just the Exactly, exactly. And he says, How could you let him end his life so painfully? And it's like you can't understand my ways. Exactly. So now my darash. The Gemara asks, What verse did Rabbi Akiva expound that prevented him from making the same mistake as Ahid? It's almost like his mantra. What was Rabbi Akiva's saving grace? That prevented him from ending up like Ahir. Rabbi Barbar Hanan Amar Rabban Yohanan Rabbi Yohanan Ve'ata meri bevot kodesh Otu barevava shelo It was the following. And Hashem, He came from the holy myriads which He explained in this manner. He, God, is unique among His myriads of angels. Therefore He knew that He had merely seen an angel. The Bi'akiva had the humility to say, everything that I've seen in my vision is not absolute. Even when I thought I saw this and that, even when I thought I saw Mayim Mayim, I'm not going to say Mayim Mayim, even if I thought I saw Mert Metatron, no matter what I think I see, reality is not what it seems. And it's the humility to say, I'm not going to insist that my perspective is absolute truth. Because I know that my perspective is subjective. That's Rabbi Akiva. He was able to sneak past the Kirubim, the angels. The La'atahariva mitapechet seems, if you don't know what a propeller of a plane is, you think it's a wall. You think it's a solid object. But then, the moment you realize, no, it's just a propeller spinning really, really fast. You say, whoa, it's not a solid object. There's a way of getting through if you go really fast enough. Same thing with all of matter. All of reality is just vibrating particles. It's not solid like we feel it is, like we think it is subjectively. In an objective level, it's all empty space. It's all ayin. It's all nothingness. So don't rest on your laurels. Don't think you know what you see. Because that's your subjective perspective. Take this humble, objective perspective of Rabbi Akiva. And we're almost done. Rabbi Abahu Amar Dagul Merevava. What other pasuk might he have used? Dugmahu said, Rabbi Akiva expanded the verse, preeminent above a myriad, to indicate that he is exemplary among his myriad. Hashem is the one that's like the exception to everything that you see. You're seeing all the angels, Hashem is like the exception. He's exceptional. He's beyond, extraordinarily beyond our understanding. Hashem is the Lord of hosts. He's the master in His host. Hashem is the master of all of it that you can't even comprehend. And if you try to identify Him with something, no, no, you're not talking about the master. There's different ways of verbalizing it because nobody could ever really put it into words. 
Finally, Rabbi Hayabar Abba, Amar Rabbi Hanan, Lo Baruch Adonai, Ve'achara Ruach Ra'ash, Lo Baraash Adonai, Ve'achara Ra'ash Ish, Lo Ba'ish Adonai, Ve'achara Ish, Koldim Ama Daka. This, when I saw this, it gave me the chills. Even now, who knows where this is from? It's from Eliyahu Hanavi. Eliyahu Hanavi on the top of Harakat Mail had the same question that so many people have had, that Ahir had, that many Nevi'im have had, that Yonah had. Hashem, how could you allow evil? That's Yirmiyahu. Aywa, what a gem we have over here. It's amazing. Exactly. It's incredible. I believe it. No, I believe it. It's amazing. Why is that so beautiful? Because now they're explaining to us that's the meaning of this story. How does it end? Hashem is not in the ruach, he's not in the ra'ash, he's not in the fire, he's not in the wind, he's not in the earthquake, he's not in the physical phenomena that you might think you see in any vision, mystical or not. What is Hashem really? Call the mama, daka, the sound of silence. That's where Hashem is found. Hashem is found in between the notes. Hashem is found in the nothingness. It ends, it says, really, Rabbi um, Akiva used the verse, this verse, right? And also, behold, Hashem passed. Right after that, it says, Hashem passed. You could catch a glimpse of Hashem if you get into this mindset. And when it says, with Moshe Rabbeinu, it's also connected, it's that same exact thing that's going on. It's all connected. It's the ability to let go of my subjective insistence of an understanding and to embrace the mystical experience in an objective manner. Baruch Adonai Amen Amen. Baruch.